This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. The nation appears to be reversing course when it comes to punishing juvenile offenders. Last Monday, President Barack Obama banned solitary confinement for juveniles in federal custody. That same day, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that 48 Colorado inmates and 1,000 others across the country can have their sentences reviewed. All of the inmates are serving life without parole for crimes they committed as juveniles. Most of us have never actually lived on our own, you know, except for in prison. That's Eric Jensen. I spoke with him a year and a half ago at the Lyman Correctional Facility on Denver's Eastern Plains. Jensen was given a mandatory sentence of life without parole when he was a teenager for his part in a murder. He's now 35. At the time of the interview, Jensen talked about how he and other juvenile lifers basically had to grow up in adult prisons, something distinct from other inmates. It's a different uh, group of people that you're talking about compared to a lot of the other guys in her who had a chance to do something with their life, you know, whether it was good or bad. You know, we've never owned our own apartment. Most of us have not owned cars, never made a tax payment. And most of us don't have kids, don't have families, don't have anything like that. Eric Jensen's father, Kurt, joins us now to talk about the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision. Kurt Jensen lives in Littleton. He's the founder of the Pendulum Foundation, which advocates for juveniles serving time in adult prisons. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. It's good to be here. What went through your mind when you heard about the recent decision from the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, I guess we want to be elated, and, and it certainly reads that way, but we had the Miller decision three and a half years ago which Colorado never implemented. Um, and at that time, everybody in Colorado, the 48 kids who were in there, actually there were 49 or 50 at the time. One's committed suicide. One committed suicide in between and one was released uh, due to other things in that case. Um, they all basically thought they were coming out the next day and they were all elated. And, so, and that hasn't happened. Colorado has been a state which has refused to do anything to implement what went on in Miller. We'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, talk about what Miller versus a- Alabama decided. What was the decision there? In Miller versus Alabama, it basically said it was unconstitutional for juveniles. First of all, they, they said, the court said, juveniles are different than adults. They have to be treated constitutionally in criminal law differently than adults. And secondly, and most importantly, there was about four or five things that they found. But most importantly, they said juveniles have to be given individual sentences depending on what they did, who they are, where they came from, and all the other factors that go into being a juvenile and making juveniles different. And um, in Colorado, you talked about that a little bit. Um, some Nothing's really happened yet in Colorado, but it has in other states, correct? Almost all the other states have changed their laws to the extent that they had to or uh, just in order to make their juvenile laws make more sense. Virtually every other western state, I think every other western state, has changed its laws so that the they have uh, parole availability to these juveniles at a relatively early time, 15 to 20, 25 years in many cases, all the surrounding states of Colorado – uh, Texas has had a law for some time that allows them to go through intense rehabilitation and get five years and be, be released on parole. Eric's case was reviewed by the Colorado Supreme Court this summer. What happened with that ruling? They ruled that Miller was not retroactive. Um, and again, Colorado became one of the very few, along with Alabama and Louisiana, 
that had ruled that Miller was not retroactive. All the other states had already ruled that it was retroactive and had changed their laws and resentenced most of their juveniles. And this new decision makes it retroactive. Let's briefly go back to 1998. What was Eric's crime? Eric was uh, a complicitor, which is um, a, a, a standby, if you like, in a murder in which uh, a boy killed his mother. Mm-hmm. And, and it was said that he helped plan the murder. Uh, th- that was not quite right, that, that he was in the place at the time and that he didn't stop it and that he may have done things that made the other boy think that he was in, in compliance with it. Now, in Eric's case, he wasn't the trigger man, but, but that's not true of all of these cases. No, in most cases, I think Eric is one of the three or four that were not directly convicted of pulling the trigger. How would this resentencing work in your mind? Would Eric and others go back to court? Under the original Miller ruling, that's what they said. But what is very clear in this ruling is that they don't have to go to court. They could actually, and and they're probably encouraged to, be eligible for parole and go to the parole board instead of going back to court to be resentenced. Do you think all of the 48 in Colorado are entitled to be released? I think that they're entitled to a review. I think that's different than entitled to be released. I think that some of them that are in there today, I would have trouble today saying these people should be out on the streets today. I can understand how people would feel that way about the way that they've acted since the time of their original crime. Uh, but very many of them have been in all the honor pods and everything else that there is in the Department of Corrections in order to show that they can become good citizens of the state. Some have talked about a legislative solution, perhaps resentence all of these inmates the same way. Currently under Colorado law, juveniles convicted of murder must be considered for parole after serving 40 years. What about making all of the 48 eligible for parole once they've served 40 years? Would you be satisfied with that? No, not, not at all. And, and, and it doesn't fit with the Miller ruling at all. The Miller ruling, I say, constitutionally says each one of these juveniles has to be sentenced individually. They can't give a one-size-fits-all to all of them. That would be number one. Number two, they have to – those those that deserve it should have – the rest of their life to live outside. And if they, if they said 40, to 40 years served, they wouldn't get out until they're ready for Social Security. So and the court has basically said on, in a very bright way, said that cannot happen. I've spoken with several district attorneys in Colorado, and they've told me these offenders who were tried in adult courts committed some very heinous crimes. They say their sentences were fair then and continue to be now. I reached out to Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler. Eric's case falls within his district. And I asked Brockler what his reaction was when he first heard about the U.S. Supreme Court decision last week. Well, I guess instantly I had some concerns, largely for the victims of these crimes that thought that there had been some finality and to now have to be contacted by our office and told that there is a very real possibility, in fact, a likelihood that they will have to rethink about these horrible issues from the past and perhaps even participate in a resentencing of the person that murdered their loved one. Uh, It's troubling. Uh, It's disappointing. What about the victims' families who thought these cases were closed? I, I, I can understand absolutely what, what a victim would feel like 
uh, with particularly their families uh, that were killed by somebody that's in there today. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, this was most of these cases were 20 years ago, 20 years in which most of those people have moved on with their lives. I won't say that they've forgotten their victims. Don't misunderstand that. But I will say that they've moved on with their lives. There are very, very few of them that remain hard cases that say, I must do anything that I can do to stop whoever it was that did this from ever getting out. In fact, many of them, we have dealt with them, have come forward and say they should have never gotten that sentence, including Eric's victim in his case, came forward to the DA at the time and said they should, those two boys should not be getting this long sentence. So the, the victims come in very many different colors and very many different sizes and shapes, and they should be treated differently, not as one group who is all ready to keep everybody in prison. And when you mean Eric victim, you mean... I mean the, the, the husband of, okay. of the lady who was killed. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that means the possibility of freedom for inmates sentenced to life in prison without parole when they were teenagers. Kurt Jensen's with us. His son Eric was sentenced to life at the age of 17. Eric is now 35 and is in the Lyman Correctional Facility in Colorado. He's actually 34, correct? 35. 35. Um, In the recent decision on juveniles sentenced to life without parole, the Supreme Court referred to research on juvenile brain development and said juvenile brains aren't fully developed until they've reached their mid-20s and that they have diminished culpability. You talked about that earlier. And you've talked before about a young Eric Jensen looking at you and your wife as he was led out of the courtroom back when he was convicted. What was going through his mind back then? He had... He had no idea what that sentence even meant. He didn't ever believe that it could ever be handed down to him, nor did we, I might add. Um, so he was in total shock, and, and it took him weeks after that sentence was read for him to even begin to understand that the judge had just said, you will die in prison. On the other hand, District Attorney George Brockler says if kids can drive, vote, drink, and serve in the military— They should be held accountable for serious crimes. There's so many things that we say you as a person of that age are old enough to make these critical, important decisions. But gosh darn it, if you decide to use that same brain to do something wrong, we're going to figure out a way to explain it away as an undeveloped brain. So why do we give kids all this responsibility and then say they're not responsible when it comes to serious crime? I I guess I disagree that we do give them that responsibility. We in Colorado have a very bright line for whatever reason at 18. We don't allow them to vote. We don't allow them to drink. We don't allow them to smoke. We don't allow them to do almost anything else. The only place in Colorado where we really treat them as an adult, we even restrict them as to how they can drive and who they can drive with, Mm -hmm. who could be in the car. The only place where they are treated as directly as an adult is when they go into court, when they're uh, under a charge by a district attorney, and then they're made to be a human being, an adult in court when they're not an adult. When we, on any other case, say those aren't adults. In this case, Eric was 17, so he was sort of close to the edge of 18. Uh, uh, we, uh, yes, that's true. But but the fact is, again, we have this bright line that we draw on every other matter, and the court, the, the United States Supreme Court, drew the same line. Talk about Eric's life now. What's it like? Uh, boring uh, to the extreme. 
That is, they are locked down at least 18 hours a day. He does work in the – he's one of two people in the prison that are allowed to work in the warden's office with the civilians and the ladies that are in there without supervision. Um, but mostly mostly these kids are given uh, very menial jobs, are kept in the worst prisons, and I mean by the most high security. They're not allowed to move. They're not allowed to do anything. Most of the time they're locked down. All, all programs, the Department of Corrections – uh, restricts all programs from them and almost every job. Here's what Eric told me a year and a half ago when he talked to me about freedom and how he envisioned life outside of prison. The basics of uh, of human existence seem like really fun to me. You know, having a family, having a house, doing normal, normal American stuff. You know, a lot of people fantasize about having a million dollars or whatever. I, I, I think about sitting in rush hour traffic, like how people out there think, this is the worst part of my day, and I would be sitting in rush hour like, this is awesome. Just to wrap up, Eric has never lived in the real world as an adult. How optimistic are you that if he's released, he'll be able to adjust to life outside of prison? I'm 100 percent optimistic. He has become a very mature person who understands both what happened in the past and his past, and, and and he served his time for that, and now he wants to move into the future, and he's done all kinds of things, including getting an education at a major university um, and other things in order to try to prepare himself to get out. Kurt Jensen, thanks for joining me. Thank you for loving me. Kurt Jensen's son, Eric, was sentenced to life without parole in 1999 when he was a teenager. Still ahead, a Colorado researcher's strange encounter with the Zika virus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Zika virus, that's the mosquito-borne disease that has exploded across Latin America and the Caribbean. It has no vaccine and no known cure. In Brazil, health officials suspect a link between Zika and a sharp rise in babies born with shrunken heads and underdeveloped brains. Brazil's seen thousands of cases, and now that country, along with others, recommends that all women wait two years to have children. Professor Brian Foy researchers ha- researches how to control mosquitoes that spread disease. He's at Colorado State University. He also got sick with Zika after working in Senegal in 2008, which led him to an interesting discovery. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andrea. Take us back to 2008. How did you get the Zika virus? Well, presumably it was through mosquito bites. Uh, we were working in a region in the southeast of the country, very rural, very remote. There are villages that are uh, working in villages that are mostly subsistence agriculture, and there's a lot of uh, monkeys, a lot of non-human primates that are kind of interspersed around the villages. And, and it's been known for many decades that the... Um, a lot of the arboviruses, the, the mosquito-borne viruses, can can emerge out of these reservoirs of of mosquitoes biting monkeys, and eventually some of the mosquitoes maybe biting people, and and they kind of emerge into the human population there. And then, so we were working in the villages, and we we were getting bitten a lot. Ultimately, your wife came down with similar symptoms around that time. Uh, talk about that. Well, we we didn't we you know we. We did our research, and we st- came home, and, and my graduate student and I, and um, the, by the time, well, we, 
but the weekend after I came home, I started getting sick with the with symptoms that I deemed later to be probably caused by an arbovirus because I researched that. And then maybe about another week after that, my wife came down with the same symptoms. And so we started to do an investigation to try to figure out what was going on. Your wife wasn't in Senegal, though, near the mosquitoes that spread that virus. So how did she get it? Exactly. So uh, we published a paper in 2011 speculating on how what occurred. Um, we think uh, that it was direct contact, and we probably think it was sexual transmission. And there's a, there's a bunch of lines of reasoning and evidence that kind of support our hypothesis, and we laid this out in our Emerging Infectious Disease article back in 2011. But you and your wife are only one case. Is there more research to be done in this realm? Most definitely. I think... Um, our case is, is the only one documenting potential sexual transmission, although there was a, a – prior to this outbreak in South America, there was a um, a large outbreak in the South Pacific Islands. And in that outbreak, there was a, a peer-reviewed publication that came out um, where clinicians documented a, a man who, um, who came down with um, symptoms of, of hematospermia, basically blood in his semen, and they ultimately isolated – Zika virus from his semen. And so there's another data point that would suggest that this this could happen. And so the question really is, Zika virus is certainly mosquito-borne. That's how it's being so widely spread. But we think that there is this other alternate route of transmission that, that warrants research, more research. Are there other ways that your wife could have contracted Zika virus? I don't think there's a really plausible way that it would have been contracted through the normal route of mosquito mosquitoes biting um that mosquitoes uh, those mosquitoes that transmit that virus are tropical and uh, they don't live in northern colorado in early september when we came home um that the mosquito would have had a bit had to bite me it would have had to been a competent mosquito it would have had to incubate the virus for a week or two, two weeks, and then ultimately bite her. And the timing of the event just didn't happen, according to that. It Direct transmission through something like saliva um, possi- could have been possible. But, um, you know, I was also wrestling around with our four kids a lot during that time. And they and, didn't uh, they get it. Got it. No. And so I think that's one, li- one line of evidence that suggests that it, it wasn't just direct or salivary transmission or something like that. Plus, those viruses aren't known to come, be in the saliva. So if Zika can spread through intercourse, what would that mean for the current outbreaks in Brazil and other countries? It's really hard to know because we don't know the probability how often it happens. If it's a very low rate of occurrence, uh, then, uh, then it would matter a whole lot. Um, if it um, if it's more than a very, very low rate, then then it could start to change kind of the epidemiology and maybe the pathology. Um, for example, uh, maybe it maybe it changes uh, the frequency of disease in women versus men. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it um, maybe it has something to do with some of these unusual pathologies we're seeing right now of 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 babies with birth defects. But that's completely speculative at this moment. But we're really interested in trying to answer that question. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking with Brian Foy, who researches mosquito-borne illnesses like Zika virus at CSU. 
So intercourse might spread Zika, but you mainly study mosquitoes, which we know spread it. What do you know about the mosquito that spreads Zika? Well, the main one that um, is the primary culprit is the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Uh, We like to kind of say it's the rat of the mosquito world. It's highly adapted to living in tropical urban environments and breeding in trash that's discarded on the side of the road that you see in these large tropical urban cities. Um, And uh, and, and it lives in people's bedrooms and, and bites them there or on their porches. And it's really good at spreading not only things like Zika, but um, dengue viruses for a long time, as well as chikungunya virus. So, so it's a real problem. And an urban phenomenon in many ways. In this country, as of Thursday, the CDC has confirmed 31 current cases of Zika across 11 states in Washington, D.C. All of those were cro- contracted overseas like yours was. So could mosquitoes spread the virus within the U.S.? Is that something we should be concerned about? We should be concerned about it, and it's probably, I think it's very probable that they will. There will be local spread um, when when the weather warms up, or even more recently, or more soon in the southern states where this mosquito lives. Um, but it's probably unlikely that we'll have massive ep- epidemics like we see in South America and Central America, because most Americans are living in screened houses and they they live in air conditioning a lot and air conditioned houses and this kind of limits generally the spread of 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 these diseases but we but we have to be very careful um and be very vigilant that um that the spread is very limited and um and that something new might not be going on and so we have to be doing a lot of research on that how likely is it that Colorado will have to deal with zika for our local transmission i don't think it's likely at all we don't have uh, it, uh, those species of mosquitoes in Colorado. Um, if they're here at all, it might just be very transiently. The weather's too cold uh, and, and it's too dry. Uh, but there will be travelers that come back from visiting different places and um, and will have to be vigilant that they can't spread through other means. I suppose. The World Health Organization announced on Thursday that they would convene an emergency meeting to try to stop Zika. Are they considering this idea that Zika could be spread through intercourse? Um, You've also done some research vaccinating mosquitoes against diseases. Um, Will they be thinking about these things? I'm not quite sure. I'm I'm not in the policy arena. I'm I'm a researcher, but I I would suspect they're thinking about it. But um, at this moment, I I, kind of imagine that they're just trying to um, deal with kind of the politics ends of of health emergencies and and how to mobilize resources and and interest and effort and amongst various um, countries um, and how they could actually combat the mosquitoes um, with with various public health measures that they that, that we know are effective. But through your research, you do think there could be some sort of vaccine for the mosquito? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say vaccine for mosquito in those words, but there are a lot of new interesting technologies that we're researching and other colleagues are researching that um, could be used to stop virus spread within mosquitoes or to kill mosquitoes early before they can start spreading uh, viruses, or even trying to specifically target um, the infected mosquitoes so they can't pass on virus virus to other people. So say an insecticide, maybe. 
potentially uh, there's yeah there's many different forms of those insecticides can take and and uh and as well as new genetic strategies and whatnot there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that are coming down the pipe that we're researching here at colorado state we're re- really eager to get these things um in implementation in the field so that um we can we can help t- contribute to the fight against zika and other arboviruses brian thanks so much for being here today no problem Brian Foy is a professor of microbiology at Colorado State University. He's led research into the transmission of Zika virus, which has recently exploded across the Western Hemisphere. Up next, another public health emergency, heroin addiction. One mother's story about her son's descent into addiction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Blogging about her son's heroin addiction was something Trish Byrne did to cope. She didn't expect one of her blogs to go viral, but she was glad when it did because she thinks opiate addiction doesn't get enough attention. Public health officials agree. The CDC has compared the uptick in heroin overdoses to the HIV epidemic of the late 1980s. Byrne's blog is called Heroin, Stop the Silence, Speak the Truth. Byrne lives in Westminster. She spoke with Ryan Warner about the blog in July. You started this blog after two people in your hometown in Massachusetts died uh, from heroin overdoses. Then you wrote about your son's heroin addiction. In the first three weeks, it got about half a million visits. How was it to be so public about what your family was dealing with? Well, we had been open to, you know, friends, family, you know, for a while. I was open to my my friends, probably more open than they wanted me to be. Well... (laughs) Wow, all the time. But when this young boy died, it was someone who had um, we had been close with and we had grown up with. And, and I just felt that I was frustrated that, that um, people – I didn't know that this boy was going through this. I didn't know his mother was going through this. So I'm across the country. We knew each other. We we're both going through the same problem. But no one's talking about it. And it's that lack of sharing that makes everyone feel so alone. Hmm. And you didn't expect uh, by any means that that this blog would take off as it has. No. Oh, that's the the public part was I thought I was sending it to to my neighbors and, you know, from back home and my my family. And then it just sort of shared from there. Um, How did you overwhelming? Overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. How so? Well, it's my words. I mean, it's my feelings. But I, I didn't I don't think I realized that many people. That struck a chord. And, and, and in a way, it, it speaks to the size of the problem that that many people said, oh, me too. How did your son's addiction start? Um, well, he started with drinking, smoking pot, and then I, I believe it was the Oxycontin. Um, for years, it was Oxycontin. Had he been prescribed that or no? no. no. I mean, it, it is a prescription medication, but right. he, he got it on the street. And how did his disease progress? Um, I wasn't really there for a lot of it because I was, I was in Colorado and he was back in Massachusetts, but he functioned the entire time. He, he, um, when he was um, on the oxy, he had a full-time job, uh, but it, it's a slow progression to more and more and more. And then you run out of money. And then even though he was working full-time, they weren't paying rent, you know, you go into credit debt and then it gets to the point where it's too expensive. And that's when they turn to the heroin. Because it's cheaper. It's cheaper. Uh huh. And easier to get at this point because 
you know, they are handling the the uh, oxy crisis by making it more difficult on the street. And that takes all those addicts and it turns them to heroin. In part, they've made it time release, so it's harder to get the hit all at once. That that's that, that's part of it, and then it's more difficult to get. The, correct? The time release is what caused the crisis, because the time release is when they were able to crush it and get that thirty. I don't really know the dosages, thirty to eighty milligram all at hit. once. And so that's what really caused this crisis. And then the pulling back of that medication and making it tamper-proof is what's kicked up the heroin Got it. use. Did he get into trouble with the law? Um, he, oh, you eyes from when he was drinking, but, um, no, no, <laughs> not how, that I know of. <laughs> yeah. How does that compare? How does his story compare to the, the stories you've now heard from what you say is this overwhelming response? Well, you know, considering he's a heroin addict, um, he's been very lucky, hmm. you know, luckier than, than a lot of people. A lot of people have done jail time, have, have, you know, um, committed felonies to, to, um, feed their habit. He's in Colorado now. He's in Colorado now. Yeah. And how is he doing? He's he's doing well. I mean, you know, uh every day's a day and and but it's taken him a, about a year and a half, about a year and a half um in August um that he'll be clean and and I would say he's com- coming out of his fog like within the last 4 or 5 months. It it takes almost a year, you know, for them to even start feeling again. The fog. Say more about the fog. They the opiate, I don't really understand the science behind it, but the, the, emotionally they, they suppress a lot. And so um, almost my, my son, I've noticed the past two months is coming back to the person he was versus kind of he, he went through this very depressed stage. Even though he was clean, he was very low-key, kind of, you know, almost trying not to feel because they're afraid of their feelings because they haven't had to have them for a while. They've been medicating them away. You have a post called, I raised an addict. What could I have done differently? This yes. is a question I'm sure that a lot of parents of addicts ask, a tough one to ask. What conclusion did you come to about your own role? Well, we, I think all parents spend, especially parents of addicts, but all parents, you know, what did I do wrong every time your child stumbles? Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and, and the answer is not a lot. Um, I, I think, you know, I personally feel that my son, I probably picked him up a lot. I, I, I um, uh, saved him from a lot, even stupid things like, you know, driving back to school to get his homework assignment when I should have said, eh, you know. But I don't think that you can – we sit in meetings and we hear people say, you didn't create this problem. You didn't make this problem. You can't fix this problem. Well, if we can't – if we didn't create an addict, then we can't not create an addict either. Addiction is something that's going to happen to the people it's going to happen to, and we can educate as much as we can our children. But I think the biggest key going forward is for parents to be aware of how insidious this problem is and be prepared in case it happens instead of denying that it might happen. What does that look like on a daily basis? In other words, I think any number of parents are aware that drugs are out there and and that it's a problem, but are there signs you would have preferred to be attuned to early on? Is it? Well, I think as parents, we all have signs. I mean, we all sort of know there's something wrong. We just don't know what. I think more key to that, I mean, we can all check our kids' rooms and it's more preparing for the reaction because you, you don't want to believe it. So when you it happens, you're angry, you're terrified, you're overwhelmed and you blame yourself and then you blame your kid. Instead of having that dialogue, you know, like we've had in the past, I mean, for years, we all don't drink and drive. I don't want you to drink. But if you drink, don't drive. 
instead of don't do drugs, which is what I said to him, just don't do drugs. They're bad. But if you do drugs and if you get in trouble, come to us so we can help you. I think that's the next step that we haven't had yet. Do you think you lacked awareness of the Oxycontin issue oh, yes. earlier and then heroin in Definitely, succession? definitely. I think um, – yeah. I mean, I think everyone, you know, from my generation, it's like, are they smoking pot? Maybe cocaine? What, I mean, the Oxycontin thing was new to me. And then when I learned about it, I still never, it never occurred to me that that would lead to heroin. That wasn't something, you know, um, that I don't know if anyone was aware. I mean, this is taken off crazily. How is your son managing to stay clean? He surrounds himself with with um, people that are in program. I mean, everybody he a twelve he hangs step program. With. Yes, he's twelve step, and um, everybody he he he's with everywhere he goes. It's all with sober people. And did he quit cold turkey, or did he have some kind of stepping he, stone? He he walked into Cedar at, at Colorado University Hospital. Um, did a ninety day program. This is an addiction recovery center. Yeah, it's a great great program. Um, then he did. Six, six months at Choice House in Louisville, which is a, a transitional program where they uh, work with them with therapy, but they still drug test them, et cetera, and they kind of work their way back into living and finding their way in life and, and, and resetting their life. And then he did Oxford House, which is sober living. So it's a year and a half of, of program, essentially. Oxford House is, is self-policed, but it's all sober living. Did he share with you what withdrawals were like? No, he hasn't really. I mean, I, uh, he's told me they're horrible. I mean, I've seen him in withdrawal without knowing it. A recent article in the New York Times pointed to an effort to have families put heroin addiction and uh, perhaps overdoses in obituaries when it is the cause of death instead of using euphemisms right? with the idea of not keeping this a secret. And that strikes me as a very similar mission to yours with this blog. I'm interested in your thoughts on the obituary angle. You know, I, I had a friend say to me once, oh, you know, some, a boy from our high school over, overdosed. This was maybe a year ago. She said, and they put it in their obituary. I can't believe it. Can you believe it? And I was like, yeah, I can believe it. Because once you've lived it and you realize how insidious it is, uh, when your child's an addict, you start learning who the other addicts are. And it, it's overwhelming. And so, you know, you want people to realize that it's it's out there and it's a huge danger. But doesn't that require coming to terms with uh, – not coming to terms with, but maybe getting over the, the shame you might feel or the tarnish that you think that that puts on your family? You know, I think that the shame part is relatively short-lived in terms of wondering what other people will think. A lot of the secret keeping comes from protecting the addict. My child was 20 years old, 21, 22 years old. You start telling people, what do they think? It, it ruins his future. Well, here's the joke. He's ruining his future anyway if you don't help him and you don't talk about it, you know. Um, so a lot of it's – people feel they're protecting the addict. Very briefly, what do you think you'll blog about next? Um, I think maybe discussing how to handle um, your child in addiction and, and rather than shame, blame, fear, anger – you know, that we have to enter this with compassion. Trish Byrne's blog is called Stop the Silence. You can find it online and on Facebook. Byrne lives in Westminster. She spoke with Ryan Warner. Still to come, an artist with multiple sclerosis uses her art to explain to others what it's like to have MS. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Seeing three of everything can be disorienting. That's what happened to Denver artist Sarah Richter in 2009. One day I woke up and I saw the world totally differently. It was very painful and frightening, but it was also really beautiful too. Doctors diagnosed Richter with multiple sclerosis. Since then, she's used art to explore how MS affects her body. Richter recreates what she calls her invisible symptoms in her latest project. She hopes it'll help others understand what she goes through. It's titled Sensory Paradox, an artist's experience with multiple sclerosis. And it's at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. Richter spoke with CPR's Ryan Warner in December. I want to go back to that uh, morning in 2009 when you had Mm -hmm. triple vision. Uh, You said it was scary and beautiful. What was beautiful about it? Well, it was uh, seeing seeing the world around me in a completely different way. Um, It was fascinating. You know, before that, um, I felt like my senses were uh, very fixed um, as far as understanding the world around me. And to... To see um, ghost images um, layered on top of one another um, of of the surroundings, um, it was it was really beautiful. When you say that our senses are normally fixed, what do you mean? Well, I mean that they're reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and when I yes, uh, I want to know if you saw beauty instantaneously or if that only came after the fact, because I'm trying to think of that situation, and all I would feel is terror. So bully for you if you found beauty immediately. Did it take time? You know, I think the experience was definitely traumatic, and there were a lot of things going on. I felt a lot of a lot of emotions about it. Um, but even at the time, I think it was because um, it wasn't something that lasted for an hour or even for a few days. This is something that I lived with for several months, and I still experience from time to time. And so I think just being in that place and and getting familiar with it and that I really felt like I was still paying attention. And it was something that you adjusted to then over time. Yeah. And of course, at first, it didn't carry the baggage of MS. You didn't have that diagnosis immediately. I didn't. I did have a suspicion um, that it could be MS. You know, I looked online and uh, there, you know, the symptoms were, um, you know, similar. Yes, exactly. And And what were the other symptoms? So the the vision was certainly part of it. But yeah, I had uh, vertigo and um, extreme fatigue uh, as well. And the vertigo was really interesting, too, uh, because it wasn't like the world around me was spinning. It was like I was spinning. It was such a strange sensation, and it was really hard to even just sit up for long periods of time. I was basically in bed most of the time for about seven months. Goodness. Yeah. I, I think that part of what led you to to suspect MS is that it is in your family. Is that right? Uh, yeah, my father has MS as well, and so and that was my, my first suspicion. All right. It's and not always genetic, though. It's not, and... I don't think it's very common either. Uh, MS is a multi-factor disease, and that's that could be one component, um, but it's certainly not. How are you doing now? Uh, I'm doing really well now. I, I feel like I live a relatively normal life. I've gotten excellent care um, from University Hospital and great support from um, 
um, sorry, from the Rocky Mountain Multiple Sclerosis Center. And so I feel like, um, like I'm really doing well. I've learned how to manage my symptoms and, and to, to work around that. I understand that your 17-year-old daughter was also diagnosed with MS? Yeah, she was. She was. So it's now multi-generational. Is that really painful? Does it provide comfort in some ways to have others along the journey with you? I mean, I was really upset when I found out that she had MS. Um, I, You know, as a parent, I just want to protect her, and it's not something that I would want her to, um, you know, to have to to go through. Um, like I would want to spare her of that. Uh, but, um, that experience has inspired her to pursue neuroscience. So, um, I feel like, wow, you know, who am I to say, you know, what her path is and where she's going. And I, I think that's kind of a, a beautiful outcome. Do you commiserate a lot with your father and your daughter? Um, you know, my daughter and I are very close and not so much with my father, but, um, you know, I think that, it's interesting, too, how with each generation, MS can look really different. Um, it also looks really different from one individual to the next. So it's not always that you have the same symptoms um, and share a similar experience with the disease. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Prior to your diagnosis, you illustrated children's books, and you say MS inspired you to pursue fine art. And so you enrolled in a program at the University of Denver called Emergent Digital Studies. And you hope now that your art can be a way to communicate an existence that's otherwise hard to describe. Uh, this shows up in a previous installation called Infinite Refraction. Um, tell us briefly about that piece and the experience you wanted to create with it? Yeah, I think that um, Infinite Refraction, I was really um, exploring um, the vision changes that I experienced. And I was trying to um, learn and understand, you know, what that was about and, um, and, and what I do with that now. And basically, uh, they were five um, sculptures uh, loosely derived from crystal structures, and they were mirrored acrylic on mirrors. And so it was an environment of these mirrors. and That distorted your perception. Distorted your perception. And as you walked through, you could see yourself um, upside down and through all of these angles and and um, reflected all of these times and, um, and, and other people walking through the gallery as well. And I think that it was disorienting and alarming and beautiful as well. And it helped me to to make sense of that somehow. Um, like, oh, like that's what I was trying to get to. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Denver artist Sarah Richter, whose latest show project is called Sensory Paradox, an artist's experience with multiple sclerosis. And let's talk about this uh, latest project. It's a compilation actually of several works, one being a sound installation that is representative of your hearing symptoms. The it's really unnerving. That, mm -hmm. Is that a literal approximation of what you hear? Yeah, I wanted to uh, basically convey that there can be different things happening in each ear, and it's very disorienting, um, that 
one ear could be experiencing hearing loss or, or tinnitus, like ringing in the ears, yeah. and and the other one it might sound very muffled or or distorted. So um, that you know, there's sort of a disconnect there um, with hearing, but it's also conveying. Um, confusion in understanding sounds, which it, it goes beyond, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't yeah. quite understand the, all the details of it, but basically it's, it's our ability to process sounds and, and that there's not this hierarchy of, um, of filtering. Yeah, of what's important and what's not. Right. And exactly. anyone who's been in a loud restaurant can mm-hmm. identify with, with that, I, I suppose, in, in some regards, but mm-hmm. not to that degree. Right. You, you mentioned uh, certainly that one of your early symptoms, and which clued you to MS, was fatigue. And there's a video installation as part of this project called fatigue. Yeah. Uh-huh. How, do you, how do you convey fatigue to someone? <laughs> I know. Uh, that, that's a really good question. It's a very difficult thing to describe. Um, uh, but I feel like it's analogous to being underwater. And um, it's, you know, when we think of fatigue, we often think of being tired. And that's certainly part of it. But fatigue is also so much more than that. It's, it's a state of being. It's hard to move the body. And every single gesture, um, it, it takes more work to do. And, and, and so moving through water, which has resistance, is a good exactly, way to convey that. Exactly. And trying to like, maintain balance and, and put forth so much more effort to do these simple tasks. And so that was what this video piece was really about. You also want people to contribute to the art through something called the mosaic of body parts. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, about reconnecting. And basically, it's inviting people to take a photograph of a body part where they've experienced some form of loss. And then they um, basically contribute that photograph to a figure on the wall. And it becomes, over time, this mosaic of a figure of all these different parts. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this piece yesterday and at all of these photographs. And I was so moved, really, that um, these people have been so honest in contributing um, what are the photos their stories. Of, what, is the, what are the photos of? Um, there are lots of different things of, like, um, parts of the face, um, even teeth, uh, you know, hands, fingers, toes, you know, um, just... And it's so interesting because... Um, it's like, wow, you know, there's a story there. There's so much to these people that, um, you know, and that there's this commonality. And basically that it's a way of relating to, to one another, that we've all experienced some form of loss at one point in our lives, whether it be through MS or through an accident or another illness. And in this piece, Reconnected, it strikes me that you are bringing together people um, around the idea of physical limitation of some sorts and that you, that can vary that definition can vary but a lot of us experience it even though we might not think of ourselves as having perhaps a disability or a disease you know right exactly and my hope is that by sharing my experience that you know it starts a conversation you know it starts a dialogue about um about what it what it means to be experiencing different types of loss in in our lives it sounds like you are a very hopeful person I am, okay. yes. I'm very positive. <laughs> do you think that the art is more about that hope or is it more about the struggle? You know, I think it's about a lot of things. And I think it's about both. Um, 
I think MS is complicated. It's a complicated experience, and it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's been really helpful, and it's been a gift to me. And I, I think that I'm a better person because of it. And other times I get really frustrated, and, you know, I, I don't think it's fun to have those limitations. I'm relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> I thought this is, this is an exceptional person who sees only a gift in this. But it, there are hard times. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Sarah Richter's project will be at the Anschutz Medical Campus through March 3rd. She spoke with Ryan Warner. I'm Andrew Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.